Romans chapter 13. If you found that, why don't you stand? We'll read together God's Word. <clears throat> Romans chapter 13, I'll start in verse 11 and uh, read down to verse 14. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of our God stands forever. Let's begin verse 11. <clears throat> Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify his desires. Join me as we pray. Father, I pray that by your Spirit you will heal hearts that are broken today. Father, I pray that you would heal wounds, emotional, even deep wounds, that the joy of the Lord would be strength. Father, I pray that by your Spirit you will, you will draw wayward sons and daughters back today. I pray that you would wake up those that are in Christ and asleep. I pray that you would encourage those that are walking with Jesus and are tired. I pray that today would be a day when we can walk out of here with hope, hope in the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. We've come to a passage that changed the course of Christian history over 1,600 years ago. And I pray that this passage, more than really my words, I pray that this passage will speak to your soul even today. The man was known as St. Augustine of Hippo, North Africa. But before he was St. Augustine, he was Sinner Augustine. He was chasing success. He was living what was then kind of the dream. He was climbing the ladder. He was actually living with a woman that wasn't his wife, had a child with her. Inch by inch, he was going up the cultural ladder, and all the world around him would recognize that that is a, a young man that's going places. And yet, as he would write in his confessions, I'll paraphrase, I'll paraphrase St. Augustine had a great big hole right in the middle of his heart. One sunny day, Augustine was walking in a garden that belonged to his friend, and there he sat down on a bench, contemplating his state of life, the own, his own despair with no real reason to be in despair. He heard the voice of what he said sounded like little children, maybe on the other side of the wall, and the voice was saying, tole legge, tole legge, take up and read. There beside him, is his friend had left his own copy of Paul's writings, and he just opened it up randomly, and his eyes came on this passage. And as he read this passage, he got to that last sentence. You see that last sentence, verse 14? That last sentence that says, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ, make no provision for the flesh, 
to gratify its desires. Augustine said that that, that went through him, that the light was shone on his heart, that God poured assurance and faith into my heart and all the shades of doubt were scattered. And from that day forward, the sinner named Augustine became Saint Augustine as he cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Now let me ask you a question in your lifetime. In your lifetime, have you ever felt a deeper need? Have you ever felt a deeper need than there is right now to be a person of light, putting on the Lord Jesus Christ and living your life for the glory of God? Many years ago, Chuck Colson and Nancy Yearsey, they wrote a book, the title of which was A Question how now shall we live? And above all the noise and the clamor in our culture today, the question comes to Christians, how do you live? And we need to answer the question. Here's how I'm going to live. I'm going to live my life for the sake of God's glory, to the glory of the Lord Jesus. I'm going to put my faith in Jesus Christ and His finished work on the cross God's grace has saved me, and I trust that God's grace will sustain me. And I pray that this passage right here, I pray that this passage gives you grace to motivate you, to motivate you to live your life for His kingdom, because it is the kingdom of God founded in Jesus that is the kingdom and the only kingdom that will last. Brothers and sisters, that is a life worth living. In fact, I'll make that the theme of our message this morning. If we talk about life in Christ, we would say it like this. Life in Christ is a life that's worth living. Now, let's go to this passage, and let's just systematically go through it. If you're a guest this morning, if you're watching for the first time, you, what we do is we open the Bible, read it, and then talk about what the Bible says expositional preaching, which simply is walking through the passage, taking the truth, and trusting that God applies it to our hearts. So here's a couple of things I want you to see. Here's the first one. Number one, how do we live in this era? Number one, we live with full awareness. Full awareness. We don't put our heads in the sand. We get our eyes wide open. We know what's going on in the world. Isn't that what Paul says in verse 11? Besides this, which is a strange transition, Normally, he, he connects two paragraphs. This time, Paul says, okay, I'm done talking about that. Besides this, you know the time. See that word time? That word time there is not the word chronos, where we get the word chronograph, where we talk about a watch. Some of you are looking at your watch even now, wondering the time, when will he be done? That's not the word there. The word there is the word kairos. Your Bible may have even translated it as season, epoch. It's like when we say, uh, boy, these sure are strange times. Or the, the popular thing has been, these are unprecedented times. I'm so tired of hearing about unprecedented these times are. But you get the picture, right? Season. It's like saying we live in this season. And, and one of the admonitions that Paul is giving us in verse 11, one of the admonitions he gives to the church in Rome is a straight line to us, the church at Hickory Grove, 
is that you and I have been placed at this specific point in history to live our lives for the gospel of Jesus. And we don't put our heads in the sand acting like we don't know what's going on in the world. We do know. But let me turn that coin over for a moment. For some of you, we also don't need to get hopped up on the news cycle watching Fox News or CNN or whatever your choice of poison is, watching it to the degree it calls, causes anxiety in your heart. Instead, we know what's going on, we see it, but that's not what we trust in. We trust in a sovereign God, and we see an opportunity to answer the world's demands with the cross of Jesus. It's, it's, what, Mordecai, it's what Mordecai told Esther. Remember that story, the... Queen Esther was what Mordecai told Esther that she had been put in that position for such a time as this. Look, we, we, we need to be aware of the anxieties. <clears throat> we must be aware of the anxieties and pressures and hatred. You see the hatred? We've got to be aware of false gospels that are offering a false answer to some of the deep questions. We need to see broken promises and wrong solutions and we need to realize that as the church, distinctly Christian, that we have a golden opportunity to point a clear path to the love of God that is found in Jesus Christ. And more pointedly, we need to keep pointing to the perfect life of Jesus that he lived righteously to give sinners. And the atonement of Jesus as he died on the cross in the place of sinners and the resurrection of Jesus that makes us have the Lord's Day. And that's why we worship on a Sunday. We need to make sure we, we chain ourselves to the gospel and, and we fight off anything that threatens the free grace of God found at the cross of Jesus. We live in a full awareness of the time we're living in. But there's something else when Paul talks about how we're supposed to live as Christians. I'll give you number two. It's also there in verse 11. Number two, we need to live with a new urgency. You probably saw it in verse 11. We need to live with a new urgency. Let me show you where I get that. Let's read a little further in verse 11. I'm going to pick up speed here in a moment. But let's, let's read a little further. Finish out the thought. I stopped you right in the middle of a thought. Notice what he says, verse 11. <clears throat> Besides this, you know the time. What's the time? That the hour has come for you to wake up from sleep. What a great true-to-life metaphor. In fact, when I was preaching this at 8, I said, wake up. I saw several heads jump up at the 8 o'clock service. What a great true-to-life metaphor when so many Christians, it feels like people have gotten bored with God. I feel like sometimes people that are professing Christians that claim to love Jesus and love the Bible have put the Bible down and picked up politics. Look, if you're more enamored, regardless of where you, if you're more enamored with a movement than you are with Jesus, then there's slumber. Paul said, you need to wake up. You know what slumber does, the slumber or sleep? It suggests lethargy. You don't move quick when you jump out of bed. Normally, you don't jump out of bed. You really just sort of roll out of bed. And usually it takes a little bit. And the older you get, the slower you move. It's been my experience anyway. And uh, you don't just aren't fully awake. Slumber, sleep suggests lethargy. It suggests a lethargic Christianity. That, that's not to say that, that many of you that are 
maybe watching online or, or here today that are professing Jesus, it's not to say you're lazy at all. Probably your life is more packed than it has been. But if your life gets so packed with other distractions and preoccupations, what happens is there's a, forget, there's a forgetfulness of God, a laissez-faire Christianity. What I mean is like a complacency in doctrine, a forgetfulness of the gospel, a rejection of real holiness, a compromise. You learn to be able to, to compromise while you judge other people's sins, you're able to compromise your own. It's a forgetting the holiness of God. Look, that is muddled up, middle-of-the-road Christianity, and Paul rejects it out of hand. It's like Paul is saying to us, look around you people. Look at how the world has seeped into the church. And if you don't do something, and this was true for the church in Rome, how much more for us now? If you don't do something, you are soon, you know, you can lose the church on one side or the other. Like the drunk peasant, you're going to fall off one side of the donkey or the other. It's going to happen if you're not careful. And Paul says you need to wake up. You're going to lose the church to the next, either the next big cultural movement or the next wave of a political movement. This is why Hickory Grove, this is why we must stay true. It's, it's why we must stay gospel-centered so that we don't become lackeys to anybody's tribe. We are disciples of Jesus. So, so have you gotten, I don't mean have you gotten lazy because you're probably very busy. Have you gotten lazy with your Christianity? Your own devotional life? Are you spending time in God's Word? Are you... Is it boring to you? Is it a chore? Are you spending time speaking to God in prayer, actually taking, what if God didn't give you anything except the things that you asked for? Are you spending time praying? Are you praying for people? Is worship real for you? Are you holding on to anger? Has your, has your own political stance become more of your identity than your own Christianity? Are you confessing your sin to, to God daily, seeking Reconciliation and reconciliation and holiness before the Lord. Or have you shown an extended empathy to people that are brothers and sisters in Jesus that are different from you, maybe even think differently than you? Look, look, the, the church does good things, but we are not just a dynamic force for good. The church, according to the Bible, is the pillar and the ground for truth. So we tell the truth about who God is, holy and loving. We tell the truth about who man is, made in God's image, but sinful and separated. We tell the truth about the gospel, that it is the only way to be connected to God is through faith in Jesus Christ. We, we tell the truth about the need for repentance, turning from sin, not compromising sin. We need to be people that, that we live our lives, not only with a full awareness of time, but we live with a new urgency. I'm asking you to hear the words, wake up, to, to live with a new urgency. Let me give you a third, maybe a third way to live. You'll find it also in verse 11. Number three, let's come up out of that and talk about confidence. Number three, we need to, li we need to live with a complete confidence in Christ. I want you to have your confidence nailed into who Jesus is. You walk out of here today, I want you to have a hope and confidence that goes beyond the circumstances, it is in Christ. Let me show you where I get that. Go back to verse 11. 
And let's read it all the way through. Verse 11. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Why do we need to wake up? Here it comes. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. What does that mean? Salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Isn't that when I got salvation, when I first believed? You know what Paul's doing right here? Paul is, is, is stretching our view of salvation. He is actually pointing to the second coming of Jesus Christ and our final glorification when he comes. You need to know that our salvation, it's good for you to, to stretch your doctrine of salvation. Our salvation is, is broader and grander than most people realize. It helps me to think about salvation in past, present, and future. Salvation past is something that happened at a point in time. Salvation past would be called justification. It's, it's Paul, when he wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, remember what Paul said there? For by grace you have been saved. Something happened there. It was through faith and not your own doings, a gift of God. That's a one-time event. It's an event that happens when you understand that God is holy and that he punishes sin. And since you are a sinner, that means you're in terrible trouble. But then you also hear that the gospel says God is loving, that he sent Jesus. Jesus died on the cross to take the punishment of the sin that I have committed. That work is finished and is applied to my heart when you repent and believe and are converted. There's something that has to happen. It's, it's important for you to hear this. It's not... It's not that you decide you're going to be a better person. Something has to happen. Jesus says you must, be, you must be born again. Paul says we go from being dead in sin to being alive in Christ. Conversion, it is dramatic. It is profound. It, it has real effect. Your past sins, and the past is, is anything that's earlier than this moment right here. Your past sins, when you're in Christ the foulness, the hurt, whatever guilt you carry, all of that has been nailed to the cross. Salvation passed. But let's not forget, we don't leave it back there. Salvation also has a present. We wouldn't call that justification. We might call that sanctification. Something that's happening that is an ongoing event, a process where you are growing stronger in Christ-likeness day by day. The way Paul would, call, would talk about this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. Paul says, For the word of the cross is folly for those who are perishing, but for us who are being saved, present tense, being saved, it is the power of God. You not only were saved back then when you gave your life to Jesus, right this very moment as you are listening to this, you are being saved. When you're being saved, being sanctified, you're growing more like Christ, there ought to be a, a process where you're getting victory over some of the sins that you've struggled with, that you are growing in grace, that you are learning more of God's Word. In fact, it's good for you to understand that every single event that comes into your life is a means of which God is sanctifying your heart. The Bible teaches that, the Bible teaches that God disciplines those He loves, and many days I think I am His favorite. All of those events, right? Everything that's going on in your life, God is using it, the good and the bad, the painful, the joyful, all of that. He is making you more like Christ. That is, you are being 
saved. Past, present. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. Paul's talking about salvation future. Future. We would call that not just in the future, we would call that glorification. So we've talked about justification, and then sanctification is the process, and then glorification. Paul says that salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Now, if that was true almost 2,000 years ago, don't you know it's more true even now? That there is a day, you know what this is telling us? There's a day when we'll be done with all of this. There's a day when we'll be done with the struggle. And Paul this morning said, look, I want you to look out there. Look toward that. When we'll be done with, with pain and done with disease and done with hatred and done with fighting, done with depression and done with anxiety and done with discouragement, done with being let down by ourselves because we keep falling into that same old sin, done with being let down by other people because they're not who they say they are. It's why we, it's why we center so much on the gospel. It's why each day we put all of our confidence in Jesus Christ and not in people, not in politics, not in systems. We live in a full, that's why you can walk out of here with joy. You have full confidence in Jesus. Let me give you a fourth thing, not just full confidence. Let's drop down to verse 12. Number four, we live with a strong hope. A strong hope. Let me show you where I get that. You'll see it in verse 12. Notice what he says there. Let's just read that first phrase of verse 12. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. Now I want you to think about just that phrase with me. Just... Just think about it a little bit. Just, it's good to think on the Bible. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. The night in the Bible, darkness and evil. The night with all of its evil and all of its darkness and all of its difficulty. The, the night that I've been living in. The, the night with all of its pain and all of its confusion and all of its hurt. It's far gone. In other words, it didn't just happen that, that it's 8.30 and the sun's gone down. Now I've got to lay here all night till the daytime. No, the night's far gone. It's past midnight. It's, it's on past 3 or 4 o'clock. It's 5.15. You, you can almost see the sun rising. The night is far gone. And the day. You see that word, the day? You ought to capitalize the T. That, that's a theme that runs throughout the Bible. It's the day of the Lord. The day, it's a biblical concept. The day is at hand. The day is the triumphant return of the reigning Lord Jesus when He will come in glory to receive His people and being, He'll bring rejoicing to His church and judgment to His enemies. Brothers and sisters, that little phrase, that little passage right there in verse 12, you ought to circle it and say, that, that's my hope right there. That passage of hope, it's, it's hope for the dark times we live in and it's hope for the dark times we live in culturally and personally. This right here gives me hope that all the hatred and all the pain and all the shooting and all the rioting, all the struggle and all the fighting and all the bickering, that it won't last. That gives me hope. It gives me hope personally. 
As a pastor, I see a whole lot of this personally. Just, it gives me hope that cancer won't last, that depression doesn't win, that anxiety and emotional scarring and abuse doesn't have the last word. Jesus has the last word. And for the believer, this reminds us that on that day, Jesus will heal every wound. Jesus will, will wipe every tear. Jesus will answer every question. Jesus will right every wrong. But tucked in, that, tucked in that passage of hope is this little strand of warning that says that day, if you're not a Christian, that day, is not only hope for Christians, that day is horror for those that are not in Christ. For on that day, judgment soon follows so that every person that has not come to Jesus Christ by faith will face the full holy judgment of an incensed God. So, so even in this verse of hope, we have this urgency to to have a conversation about Jesus, to take the next step and share Jesus if you're not a believer, to, to hear the truth and turn, make, make today the day of salvation in Jesus. Look, it, it's why we live like we do as Christians. We, we live in a full awareness of the time. We see the time that it is. We live, with, we live with a new urgency. We live with complete confidence in Christ. We, we live with a, with a strong hope because the night's almost gone. The day, that day, is coming. Let me give you one more thing to think about. Number five. We live with a clear, clear difference. We are different if you're a Christian. We're not like the world. The answers we have are different than the world's answers. To see that, you've got to read verse 12 and 13 together. Let me give you some, a little explanation before I read it. Verse 12 is a broad statement, and verse 13 gets specific with sins. Verse 12 gives sort of a, here's what you do, cast off. Verse 13, he lists six sins, really in three pairs. Let me, let me read it and show it to you. Verse 12. <laughs> the night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then, here's what we do. Let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. It's kind of a violent, it's like, it's like you're wearing a shirt and you've got a hundred fire ants in it, you're coming out of that shirt as quick as you can. Cast off so that's kind of what verse 12 is. Cast off the works of darkness, put on the armor of light, and then notice how he says it negatively in verse 13. Let us walk properly in the daytime, not, what is proper walking? It looks not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousies. Let's go through them very quickly. Three pairs of two sins. They are synonyms. The first one you find there, orgies and drunkenness. That word orgy is not what you might think it is. It has a broader term. It means revelry. It's, it's like Mardi Gras, a complete loss of self-control, drinking till you just can't see straight and then acting in ways you wouldn't normally act is backed up by the word drunkenness. It's, it's a complete lack of respect for yourself and for other people. It's outright hedonism. And Paul says, that's, that's not what Christianity looks like. That's not how we act. He says there's something else too. Let me give you another pair of sins there. You see those two words that go together? Sexual immorality and sensuality. 
That phrase, sexual immorality, in Greek, it is literally the word bed. And the way Paul is using it here, he's saying, don't be in the wrong bed. What then is the right bed? Well, for Christians, we understand that the Bible tells us that the right bed is the bed that is shared between a husband and a wife and no other. And then he backs it up with this word. You see that word sen sensuality? William Barclay, the great Presbyterian preacher, he looked at this word and traced it out and he said his opinion now. That word sensuality is a Greek word, eseldia. It's not important that you write that, that down because you won't see it again. He said that's the foulest word. He said that's the ugliest word in the Greek language. The word means that any person or act that has lost all shame. And he's talking in a sexual sense here. So, so any person that's lost any sense of shame, we see it in our culture today here in the United States with the velocity of the sexual revolution that is moving so quickly that you can't, you can't hardly keep up. And so you see things like the LGBTQ movement or the rise of homosexuality and now in the last 10 years of transgenderism or now polyamory. And so this, this normalizing of all these things that before were so shameful. And, and Paul says, if you're not careful, that's going to feel and sound like normal behavior, and it's not. It's not Christian. Paul is saying that's, that's darkness, and this is what Jesus, Jesus is better. This is what Jesus saves us from. Notice, notice that third pair of sins. The first two are kind of world-class sins. You're like, yeah, I mean, that's terrible. Notice that third pair of sin, it, sins, it's a respectable. Not in quarreling and jealousy. Quarreling, that first word is the desire for more power to, to sort of be in the lead. The jealousies, jealousies that show up, the wanting to succeed but do it in such a way that you're better than other people instead of being content in where Christ has put you. To live your life for Christ. So he lists, you have to follow along, <clears throat> he lists all those sins in 12 and 13, and then in verse 14, I'll use this as the invitation. In verse 14, Paul gives the answer to all of those sins listed in verse 13. Notice what he says. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. You see that phrase, put on. That means an intentional, willful act that you make a decision to turn from your sin and turn to Jesus Christ. It's something that happens at a point in time so that you will be saved. It's on purpose. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on the Lord. Recognize His Lordship. I don't mean you make Jesus Lord. Jesus is Lord. I mean your life yielding to His will. You submitting to His authority, you giving yourself over so that His way is the only way you want to live. Seeing Him as Lord. Put on the Lord Jesus. Put on Jesus. Seeing Jesus as a substitute. That is to say, He lived perfectly. You can't. You're a sinner. And seeing your need for someone to live in your place. But, but not only that, you deserve 
to be punished for your own sin, to see Jesus taking your punishment on the cross, to put on Jesus who's taken your punishment on the cross and receive his righteousness, put on the Lord Jesus. Christ, put on Christ. To see him as king, he alone is ruler in your life. He alone demands all of your allegiance. King Jesus, you, you serve a king whose kingdom is not of this world. If you'll put on the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll find out life in Christ is worth living. And I, I just want to speak from testimony and encourage you and promise you, if you'll live your life for Jesus, life in Christ is worth living. Join me as we pray together. Amen. Your heads bowed this morning. I'm just going to invite any of you that are watching online to send in a prayer request. We read them all. You can even register as a guest if you'd like to send that in. Just tell us as much as you're comfortable with so that we can pray for you and contact you. If you're here today, uh, since we're not actually having an invitation, the best way to do that would be also be online. I want you to, to have the joy and confidence and trust and hope of living your life in Christ, especially during such a difficult time. I pray the Lord's blessings on your life as we depart today and ask God to continue to use you for His glory. Father, thank you. Thank you for your goodness in Jesus. Thank you for the grace you give us. And I pray you continue to use us for glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.